He is everlastingly worthy to receive the praises of his people whom we he redeemed and we will have the privilege of doing that throughout eternity to our everlasting joy I might add as we praise him for the accomplishment uh, on his cross uh, Romans chapter 4 beginning at verse 9 two weeks ago I preached uh, from this passage and week before that and here we are again this morning Romans chapter 4 beginning at verse 9 Romans chapter 4 verse 9 let me read the text in your hearing in this is this blessing then on the circumcised or on the uncircumcised also for we say faith was credited to Abraham as righteousness How then was it credited, while he was circumcised or uncircumcised? Not while circumcised, but while uncircumcised. And he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of righteousness of the faith which he had while uncircumcised, so that he might be the father of all who believe without being circumcised, that righteousness might be credited to them. And the father of circumcision to those who not only are of the circumcision, but who also follow in the steps of the faith of our father Abraham, which he had while uncircumcised. Uh, just to help you in Bible study, that word circumcised, I, I, all those times it's said, that lets you know that's an important word. Amen. Amen. My subject for this morning is accepted by God. By grace alone and through faith alone, is God's method of salvation. It is his way of conferring righteousness on the believing sinner in order for him or her to be accepted by him. This method of salvation has always been the means by which the Lord has saved sinners, whether in the Old Testament era or the New Testament time period, and certainly today. In Romans chapter 3, verse 21, we hear these words, But now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Law and prophets, shorthand for the Old Testament. Imputed righteousness was revealed even in the Old Testament and is fully manifested in the New Fallen man's spiritual DNA invariably compels him to seek acceptance with the Lord by his own means and methods. The Jews are a classic case in this matter. According to Romans 10 verse 3, they were seeking to establish their own righteousness rather than the righteousness from God. The Apostle Paul, however, argues that acceptance by God of sinners is wholly apart from any human initiative or endeavor. In earlier in this chapter, verses 1 through 5, the Apostle uses Abraham as his, to prove his case. There, in, then in the remainder of the chapter, he continues to repudiate the idea of anything that humans can do to earn acceptance by God. Now, in the passage that we're under, un, looking at this morning, uh, investigating, the apostle adds another to the list of things which do not avail righteousness that God requires. 
namely circumcision. After a brief interlude, as you recall, oh, two weeks ago, we talked about David. David was a justified man, wasn't he? And David was a man who sinned notoriously. But it did not cancel out his righteous standing before God. After that interlude with that uh, Old Testament worthy, we now come again uh, through Paul's pen to Abraham, who was justified by grace. Those are beautiful words, justified by grace. Because when you think about who you are and what you were, thank God that we're justified by grace. For any child of God, justified by grace. So it was for Abraham. That's the first point in this message. The first and the only point, actually. The standard Jewish view was that Abraham secured God's blessing by fidelity to the law. They claimed that the reason he was righteous before God is because he was faithful to divine law. Wrong. Not true. That blessing, the blessing of justification, the blessing of righteousness, is credited to human beings. That is, it's imputed to believers. People are declared righteous, are justified, because they have the imputed righteousness of God or Christ to their account. That's how it happened for you. That's how it happened for me. Now, Paul, here... Uh, ask a question in the first part of verse 9. And the part of it, question is, are only uncircumcised also? This blessing. This blessing, this state or condition of blessedness that results from justification, the imputed righteousness of God. Is it on the uncircumcised also? Can the uncircumcised, those without this religious right, experience this particular blessing? Now, I know what you're thinking. Uh, That's a good question, maybe, but circumcision is not really pressing on my mind this morning. It's not really what's in the mind of uh, people today. But this text remains perpetually relevant because whether it is circumcision or any other act, religious or otherwise, by human beings, the principles enunciated here apply. Second, many people remain under the illusion that what they can accomplish is necessary to their being accepted by God. I've already mentioned that. That's the way people think. They think somehow, in some way, they can do something that enables them to be received by God. For example, there's some churches who maintain that water baptism is an indispensable component of salvation. For them, it is faith in Christ plus water baptism that secures their soul, that brings acceptance with God. This heresy is called baptismal regeneration. Somehow, in some way, even twisting scripture, they believe if I just am baptized, that'll make me all right with God. Now, water baptism is an important ordinance. Jesus Christ gave it to the church. We are to baptize. Anybody who has come to Christ by faith is to be baptized in obedience to Christ, right? 
It really demonstrates our identification with him, our union with him in his death, burial, and resurrection. That's the whole point of immersion in the water being brought up out of it. But it confers no saving benefit. Water baptism is an important act, as I just indicated, but it is a post-salvation act. We obey Christ. We demonstrate our union with him, our identification with him in his death, burial, and resurrection. But that's for those who've already come into the faith. Others believe, moving from baptism, that their good works obligate God to accept them. We can see a repudiation of this idea in Acts chapter 10, verses 1 through 2. The case of Cornelius. He's a Roman centurion. The Bible had some glowing things to say about this centurion, this Roman, this Gentile. He was a devout man. He was one who feared God, and he gave alms to the Jewish people and prayed to God continually. But the reality is that he was not saved. He did all of those things. He was a devout man. He feared God. And he gave alms to the Jewish people. And he prayed. But he was not saved. Scripture is clear about that. This religious devotion by this man named Cornelius, this Gentile, did not redeem him. And we know this because the biblical record tells us so. In fact, the apostle Peter was sent by the Holy Spirit to Cornelius to preach the gospel to him. Reporting on the encounter with Cornelius, Peter told the church at Jerusalem that an angel had told Cornelius to send for Peter, who will speak words to you by which you will be saved, you and your household, Acts chapter 11, verses 13 and 14. Later, at the first church council in Jerusalem, Peter said about Gentile salvation in Acts fifteen eleven these words, listen, but we believe that we are saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus in the same way as they also are. Notice the words, the grace of the Lord Jesus. It was by Faith in Christ, the grace that was bestowed upon the believing sinner that Cornelius and everyone else is redeemed. redeemed. Jews and Gentiles saved by grace through faith, right? Amen. Cornelius was not circumcised. Nothing he did other than believe brought him salvation. Now, back in verse 9, some of you turned over there. That's all right. You can look at it more closely later. But here in verse 9, uh, Paul, uh, he asked a question about this blessing of justification or righteousness being credited. And he says, in answer to it, these words in verse 9, For we say faith was credited to Abraham as righteousness. He is appealing to Scripture. And that's the place you always have to appeal for any doctrine, any truth. Scripture. Genesis 15, 7, 4. The word of God is authoritative. It is never what men say, it's what God says. It's what God declares. <laughs> when God says it's so, it is so. 
faith was credited to Abraham as righteousness. In other words, by the instrumentality of faith, he received the imputed righteousness from God, and he was therefore a justified man. He was righteous before God. Now, making this statement in verse 9, in verse 10, Peter, uh, Paul rather says, How then was it credited? What he means here is this. Under what circumstances was righteousness credited? And he asked, while he was circumcised or uncircumcised? He asked the question, but then he uh, quickly answers the question, not while circumcised, but while uncircumcised. How did he receive this blessing? How was the righteousness credited to him while he was uncircumcised? And how does Paul know this? Well, wouldn't you know it? The word of God tells him. That's how you know. We look at the Old Testament chronology or the timeline of events in Abraham's life and it demonstrates that it was while he was uncircumcised. Let me just give you briefly the, the chronology. First, in Genesis fifteen six, as Paul has said twice now within the space of these uh, ten verses, he says that it was credited to him as righteousness. Then you see the second thing here, moving along this timeline, we see that Ishmael, Abraham's son by Hagar, was born as reported in Genesis sixteen sixteen. In Genesis chapter 17, verses 23 through 24, about 14 years later, when Ishmael was 13 years old and Abraham was 99 years old, both were circumcised. You, you see the timeline? The timeline shows that in Genesis 15, 6, Abraham was declared by God to be righteous. You move a little further along in Genesis 16, 16, he has a son by Hagar named Ishmael. And as the process of time continues, you get to Genesis chapter 17, and you see Abraham's 99 years old, it's about 14 years later, and then he is circumcised. He was declared righteous back in Genesis 15, 6. It is in Genesis 17 that he was circumcised. Abraham was justified by grace before the circumcision knife was applied to him. So circumcision had no role whatsoever as to as a condition for salvation. Circumcision did not make Abraham acceptable to God. He already was by grace through faith. I know you're asking, well, what then is the purpose of circumcision? Why does God deal with this? Since it doesn't save, doesn't contribute to one's salvation, why on earth does he address this issue? Apart from the fact that he was arguing the point of how one is righteous before God to the Jews and subsequently showing to all of us that no act that we could ever do could make us acceptable by God is simply by his grace. There's another purpose. Literal circumcision served a symbolic purpose. According to Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 16, and chapter 30, verse 6, it symbolized the need for the removal of sin from the heart. It indicated the need for cleansing or inner transformation. Jeremiah 4, 4 says this, 
circumcise yourselves to the Lord and remove the foreskin of your heart. The problem with sinners is the heart. And the heart needs to be cleansed. There needs to be spiritual surgery in the heart. That's why you cannot expect people to be what you think they ought to be unless the heart is addressed. In Jeremiah 4.4, 4, which I just quoted, it means this. Take away fleshly things that keep the heart from being spiritually devoted to him. Take away the fleshly things that keep a person from being devoted to the Lord. That's why the heart needs to be circumcised. That's why the graphic terminology, remove the foreskin of your heart. And in true faith, this has happened. Why was circumcision used to teach a lesson about the need for inner transformation? You wonder, why would God do that? Why would he use the male organ, the circumcision of it, to teach a lesson about the heart? That's a good question. Well, I'll tell you why. Listen, the male organ is the means by which human depravity is transmitted in human reproduction. Think about it. Every parent reproduces, every father reproduces someone just like him. Depraved. A sinner. A generation of sinners. You wonder why they act like they do? You reproduce them. And so God was letting us know the problem of the human heart, the reproduction of human beings, and the issue is in the heart. Our physical circumcision cannot produce inward change. It was never intended to. It was to illustrate the need for it. In Romans chapter 2, Paul mentions this. He says, verse 28, For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh. He is letting us know the spiritual significance of circumcision. That's true circumcision. Verse 29 But he is a Jew who is one inwardly. A true child of God who is circumcised inwardly. You'll notice in the text as well, by the Spirit. The transformation that comes by salvation. Not by the letter. Outward conformity to divine law. The Jews sought to conform to the law outwardly without a circumcised heart. And Paul is writing here, that doesn't make you a true Jew. That doesn't make you a child of God. The heart has to be circumcised. 
say, well, I'm not a Jew. I'm a Gentile. What about me? I'm glad you asked. You've been circumcised. The kind that matters. The kind that has eternal significance. The kind that means you've been transformed. In Colossians chapter 2, the Apostle Paul had to address this church at Colossae. Colossians chapter 2, verse 11. It says this, And in him you were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. In Christ. That's the in him. You were also circumcised. That is at the point of salvation. When you were saved, what God did, he circumcised your heart. He cleansed you from the inside. He changed you. Everything that Deuteronomy pointed to, everything that Jeremiah pointed to, all of that, the circumcision, the physical, which was symbolic of what was really deeply needed in the human heart, God did in Christ at the moment you were saved. Circumcision made without a hand, supernatural. Had to be supernatural. It's not a human involvement. It's divine involvement. It's God himself who did this. In the removal of the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. God in Christ. To this, this spiritual circumcision. You'll notice it says the removal of the body of the flesh, our old man, i.e., all that we were before regeneration, before the new birth, all that we were, the old man, our old unregenerate self. Body and flesh, our sinful propensities. We, we can do anything but that, right? And circumcision, spiritual circumcision, done supernaturally. By God at the moment of our redemption. He circumcised. Our hearts. Say hallelujah if you can. That's what God did for you. Now. Abraham's circumcision. As we've seen. Did not contribute to his salvation. But it did perform a function for him and his people. In verse 10, it's not while circumcised, but uncircumcised. It was a sign between him and God and all his descendants as God's chosen people. That's why the Jews are circumcised. This day, the sign of the covenant. In verse 11, it says, and he received the sign of circumcision. Abraham did a seal of the righteousness of faith, which he had while uncircumcised. Paul continues his argument to demonstrate clearly and conclusively that circumcision had nothing whatsoever to do with Abraham's salvation. It's merely, notice the text, it says he received the sign of circumcision. Let me stop there and just talk a moment about a sign. 
my wife and I, uh, some years ago, 1990 to be exact, were traveling to California, and we got to New Mexico, and there's a sign, a road sign that said, Los Angeles, 1,005 miles. Now, that is a depressing thought <laughs> when you're driving. 1,005. Why would they put it in New Mexico? It was to discourage us, I'm sure. But the sign pointed uh, to something beyond itself. The city of Los Angeles. The sign of circumcision pointed to something greater than itself. Something greater than physical circumcision was pointed to. And really it's defined, the sign is, here in the next part of the verse, after the comma, a seal of righteousness of the faith which he had while uncircumcised. Seal defines the sign. The sign which is circumcision is also a seal. A seal validates. It authenticates. For example, a U.S. passport includes two recent photos of yourself. One of the photos has affixed to it the great seal of the United States of America. It is stamped in such a way that it is impossible to remove it or alter the photo without damaging the document. You know what the seal of the United States means affixed to the, your photo in your passport? It indicates that the government of the United States stands behind you. It says that you are a true citizen of the United States. What does that have to do with Abraham? Well, in Abraham's case, the seal validates what happened in Genesis 15, 6. It authenticates it. It means that genuinely, truly, he was declared righteous in Genesis 15, 6 when he believed God. And it was credited to him as righteousness. His circumcision was a sign, a seal. Yes, he had righteousness. And he had it by faith. And he had it while uncircumcised. And every time circumcision was performed, God's people were reminded of the righteousness of Abraham through faith. Apart from holy, apart from circumcision. And we, Every time we think about it, we recognize that God justified him apart from circumcision. He justifies apart from anything that human beings can do. Now the B portion in Romans 4.11, so that he might be the father of all who believe without being circumcised. Oh, you ought to read that verse and think, oh, what does that mean? That's you. That's me. Gentiles. 
Henry Louis Gates has a program, perhaps many of you know about it, Finding Your Roots. And celebrities usually are the ones who have their heritage searched out and they find out all their relatives go back and sometimes it's somebody famous, sometimes it's somebody notorious. (laughs) And sometimes they're amazed at who they find out they were related to. And they have their family tree given to them. I thought about that when I was thinking about this. We have a spiritual family tree. We have an ancestor. The top of our family tree. Our ancestors none other than Abraham. He is the father of all those who believe in Christ without being circumcised. He's our spiritual father. Isn't that good news? And that righteousness might be credited to them. In other words, it was credited to righteous, to Abraham, righteousness was before he was circumcised. So it will be to us without any religious ceremony. But in verse 12, and the father's circumcision to those who are not only circumcised, the Jews, but who also follow in the steps of the faith of Father Abraham, which he had while uncircumcised. Abraham's reception of circumcision then qualified him to be the father of the those who were uncircumcised and circumcised. He's the father of the faithful. Now let me show you something to back this up. Galatians chapter 3. Galatians chapter 3, verse 7. Father Jews and Gentiles. You know, I want to connect it to the great reality of uh, what God was doing when he called Abraham. Galatians chapter 3, verse 7. No, verse 6. Didn't mean to confuse you. Even so, Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as what? Notice verse 7. Therefore, be sure that it is those who are of faith who are sons of Abraham. Uh, If you're a Christian this morning, if you're of faith, you are a son of Abraham. Welcome. You're in the family. You're a son of Abraham. You are a descendant of his, spiritually speaking. He is your father, spiritually speaking. Abraham. Now, we read in the Old Testament in Genesis chapter 12 and verse 3, God called Abraham to the earth of the Chaldees and said, go, I'm going to show you land. And I'm going to multiply your descendants, etc. He says, in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed, right? Verse 8, Galatians 3, the scripture foreseeing, scriptures personified, that God would justify the Gentiles by faith. Preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham saying all the nations will be blessed in you. Way back there God said Abraham through you 
all the nations, our family, the earth will be blessed with what? Credited righteousness through faith. It's the good news of salvation by faith for all nations. Through Abraham. That's the reality. Through faith. That's how you're accepted by God. Thank God he did it that way. God did for us what we could never do for ourselves. We would fail. No one's good enough. No one could work hard enough. No one could be religious enough. No one could measure up. So God had to do it for us. Sinclair Ferguson summarizes what God did for us. Let me give them to you. Four things. He justifies the ungodly. Were you ungodly? God didn't tell the truth. We all were. Second thing, he justifies because of Christ's righteousness, not because of ours. Thank God. Let me expand on that. Let me let you know that Christ lived a perfect life. He was the spotless lamb of God. His act of obedience, he obeyed God in every single detail of the law, in his thought, in his words, his actions, everything. He was perfect. Is that righteous life that he lived is the righteousness that God has credited to you. He treats you as if you had lived that life. You know you didn't. Oh, thank God that he credited Christ's life to you. His righteousness to you. The third thing that Ferguson says is this. He justifies those who have faith. Notice. Expanding a bit here again. He declares righteous those who have faith. Those who just simply believe him. Say, yes, God, I take you at your word. Jesus Christ died for my sins. He was buried and raised from the dead. And if I trust him, I will be yours. I, I, I trust you, God. I receive him as my Lord and my Savior. And God says at the moment there's genuine conversion, genuine belief, then he declares righteous. Ah, for he justifies once forever and perfectly so we have peace with God Mm. we can unpack this sentence he justifies once he doesn't need to do it again and again and again it's forever it'll never run out there won't be some point in your life or in, in eternity future where you say oops Have I lost my justification? No. Perfectly. Nothing needs to be added to it. It's perfect justification. Romans 5.1 says we have peace with God. That means that we do not have war with him any longer. Those four things. 
summarize what God has done for us. And may I tell you, believers in Jesus Christ are the only people on earth who are accepted by God. Because they're the only people who've done what God has said to be accepted by him. And if you're a Christian, that means you. That's why we give him praise for what he's done for us. Let us pray together, please. Our God and our Father, we thank you for these truths, uh, solid rock rib truths about salvation, about grace and faith and righteousness, which is ours because of what you've done at Calvary through your Son. Lord, I pray that we take these truths to harden and may um, they be a cause for increased worship and praise uh, and gratitude to you. And that we will resist any idea, any notion that somehow, some way, we are deserving of what we've experienced in Christ. For we are absolutely, utterly undeserving of your grace. May you teach us more deeply uh, what all of this means. We contemplate the Spirit of God brings back to mind what we've heard. Help us even have greater clarity in our minds and then give you the appropriate thanksgiving for what you've done for unworthy sinners who deserved your wrath but received imputed righteousness. Glory to your name. I pray for anyone here this morning who's without the Savior. May they understand that only through him can they be accepted by you. Draw them to yourself. Even as you did Cornelius, even as you did us. For your own praise, for your own honor, and for their joy now and forever. In Christ's name I pray, amen.